Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. It's wonderful to just gather with you today to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, if you're out there and you're thinking, wow, you know, Pastor Nathan, his voice sounds weak today. He looks so dizzy. He's like holding onto the pulpit <laughs> to say, standing. it's because I, I am recovering from something. I took four COVID tests this week. They're all negative um, but I'll be staying back from you a little bit after the service. And, and if I start to become incoherent, uh, hopefully uh, you'll know why. But let's pray for God's grace for me today. And um, I, I see they're still working on the slides um, for my, my sermon. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times published an article with this title, Hillsong Once a Leader of Christian Cool Loses Footing in America. The article chronicles how within the, the span of only two weeks last month, Hillsong Church lost nine of its 16 church campuses across the United States. This means that local Hillsong churches in various parts of our country have decided to disaffiliate with the larger Hillsong uh, family of churches. They've decided to close their doors. Many of them are then reopening as independent churches, and they're doing this because of many scandals that have broken in the past few years, some at the highest levels of of that, that church family. The director of Wheaton College's Billy Graham Center, Ed Stetzer, describes the profound effect that these events will have. He says this, I can't think of a church in the English-speaking Western world with as broad a global reach as Hillsong. The crisis at this church is a very big deal and will have ramifications not just for Hillsong, but for contemporary evangelism around the world. Now this morning, I want to be very clear that I'm grateful for the many, many good things that Hillsong Church has contributed to global Christianity, especially through its worship music. At the same time, though, I can't help but wonder if not just Hillsong, but also many of us as believers have been pursuing the wrong things in the wrong ways. Have we been pursuing prominence and prestige by using the methods of this world? Have we been trying to advance our own goals through leveraging our wealth and social influence and perhaps through using questionable political maneuvers rather than allowing God to lift up his own church, to build his own kingdom, to send revival in his own time? Have we been propping ourselves up in ways that mimic the self-promoting and methods of the marketers and the influencers of our world around us? In so doing, I wonder if instead of raising up true followers of Jesus Christ, have we been trying to gather, as churches in the United States, have we been trying to gather around ourselves fans, not followers of Jesus, but fans of social trends who will quickly fall away when 
the paths become difficult and costly. I think that one of the central lessons of Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, that's today, this is Palm Sunday. I think one of the central lessons of Palm Sunday is that Jesus calls us to walk a different path. Jesus calls us to influence people in a different way. And we see this in Jesus' refusal on the weekend of Palm Sunday, this weekend, his refusal to leverage wealth and social influence and shady political maneuvers to increase his standing or, or to increase the number of his fans here on earth. And this morning, let's together learn from Jesus' example. Let, let, let's see, let's consider how, how he might be calling us to walk a humbler path, a path that might look less flashy, a path that follows not in the footsteps of the stars and the influencers of our world, but a path that follows in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a path that may not be infused with earthly power and glory, but this is the only path in which we will experience the power and the glory of God. In John 12, we find Jesus on the brink of stardom. He's becoming an influencer like few others in his entire society at this time. And yet rather than capitalize on his fame and popularity by cementing and expanding his own personal brand, Jesus moves in the opposite direction. Jesus moves toward, toward the death of the cross. He refuses to be the type of influencer that the crowds around him insist that he should be. He overturns their ex expectations for him and he empties himself out of love for us. Jesus' death, which looks like defeat by every measurement of social influence, actually is the most influential event in all of human history because through this event, Jesus opens the door for eternal salvation, eternal life. That means life as we've been longing to experience it, a life of fullness and meaning and contentment with our creator who we were created to live in relationship with. This is what Jesus opens the door to through his death, and he offers this life to all who believe, all who look to him as their Savior and as their Lord. And so this morning, we're going to look at several moments when Jesus chooses a different way of influencing others than the methods used by the self-promoters of our world. The first moment comes as this shocking, this extravagant display of devotion and commitment. In John 12, 1 through 3, we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Not long before this, Lazarus had died and, and was buried in a tomb. It was, his story was over. But then, and Jesus purposely delayed his arrival to allow Lazarus to die, to allow him to pass away so that Jesus could then raise him from the dead and by this act call his disciples and all those who see this event to, to, place their trust in him, to move into deeper belief that he is the one sent by God to deliver us from the brokenness and death caused by our sin. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then his family throws this huge party to honor Jesus. And during this meal, there's this amazing moment where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, takes this incredibly expensive jar of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. You see, in this culture, when you would have a party like this, you'd have servants who'd be ready to wash the feet of the guests. Remember, everyone wore sandals on dusty roads and your feet needed to be washed when you enter a house. And so they would use water and towels to wash the, the feet of their guests. Here, though, we see Mary decides that water is not good enough for Jesus' feet. And so she uses costly perfume. And then she decides that a regular towel just is not good enough for the feet of my Lord who raised my brother from death into life. And so she uses her hair. By this, she's not only honoring Jesus. By this act, Mary's actions are communicating Jesus' immeasurable worth. Sometimes we need to do something that's impractical. Sometimes we need to do something that's costly in order to express and live out the reality that Jesus is worth immeasurably more than the treasures of this world. We then read that not everybody was happy with what had happened. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now on the surface, Judas' words make sense. He's being very practical. He's suggesting that we make the best use of our money that we can and that better uses can be made than pouring perfume on somebody's feet. And in fact, he has a suggestion, let's give it to the poor. We could have given it to the poor. In fact, giving the money to the poor could have been a way of leveraging Jesus' influence even more. It could have been a brilliant way of expanding Jesus' brand. Because many would have heard of this act. They would have been impressed. They might have thought uh, more highly of Jesus. They may have become his fans. Leave her alone. 
Jesus replies. He has a different view. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This dramatic display of commitment and devotion that Mary demonstrates here matches the dramatic events that will soon unfold when Jesus dies on the cross and is buried. The practical use of money in this specific situation does not match the movement or the will of God. The leveraging of this money to increase Jesus' reputation is not in line with God's will in this moment. Here Jesus affirms the impractical use of expensive perfume because this is in tune with what God is doing right now here in this specific moment. This was a moment not to save money, but to spend money out of love out of commitment, out of devotion to Jesus Christ. And this act of commitment and devotion, pouring perfume over Jesus' feet, this this is pointing ahead to the fact that he will soon be buried. He will soon die. We recently learned during our study of the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, that how we spend our money is always a deeply spiritual issue because what we do with money reveals the condition of our hearts. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is going to follow your treasure. Jesus overturns our expectations of what is a wise and proper use of money by affirming this extravagant, totally impractical act of commitment, devotion, and love that Mary spends her wealth on. Yes, there is a time to save money, yes. But there's also a time when God calls us to release our money in acts of commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ. This scene occurred on Saturday. The next day, Palm Sunday today, Jesus shows even more clearly that his way of influencing others contrasts sharply with the ways of the world. We read that the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He took palm branches and went out to, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world 
has gone after him. Jesus is becoming an influencer. The miracle he did of raising Lazarus from the dead is bringing him levels of popularity and fame that very, very few in his society would ever reach. The crowds act accordingly by welcoming him as a conquering hero into the city of Jerusalem. Hosanna, they shout. That's a Hebrew phrase that, that means save. And by this point in history, it become this, this, this word that expresses praise and, and admiration for someone that you see as a deliverer. The crowd also uses messianic slogans, crying out that Jesus is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that Jesus is the King of Israel. They're declaring that Jesus is their long-awaited deliverer from the oppression of the Roman rulers. Even the act of waving palm branches was full of political significance at this time because people waved palm branches to celebrate the Maccabean victory many years earlier. This was a Jewish victory over foreign Greek armies that occurred between the Old and New Testaments. This was a political sign they were waving in the air in these palm branches. These actions by the crowd indicated that they were expecting Jesus to be someone very specific. They were expecting Jesus to be a political deliverer who would free them from Rome. Even Jesus' most bitter critics declare with envy, look how the whole world has gone after him. Look at that. This is the moment that politicians and influencers in our society long for. They crave this moment. This is an opportunity to ride, to ride a wave of popularity and, and fame into greater levels of influence and power. Yet Jesus has a different plan entirely. Instead of raising up an army and marching to the governor's house and overflowing, overthrowing, sorry, overthrowing the system, Jesus plans to achieve an eternal victory through his death and resurrection that will free us from an oppression that's so much deeper, the oppression of sin and death in each of us. And so in this key moment, Jesus sharply turns away from the worldly fame, the worldly influence that's being offered to him. And we see this most clearly in how he interacts or how he does not interact, I should say, with some who want to become his fans. Now there were some who were Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. We want, his, we want a selfie with Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, this was Jesus' big moment. This was his chance to expand his fan base beyond the, the local group of, of Jewish people in, in his area. This was his chance to go international. Most people would have felt thrilled that they were drawing so much attention, that, that the, so many people wanted to be their fan. And, and most people would have welcomed this meeting with a new contingent of 
potential fans, Philip and Andrew, Jesus' disciples, seem very excited. They seem to be trying to manage this situation just right, maximize it for for Jesus' uh, popularity. But Jesus' response to this situation by saying things that sound jarring, saying things that are totally unexpected, he, he says things that are the opposite of what a self-promoter would say. Things that are the opposite of what a shrewd and clever worldly influencer would say. Notice that Jesus completely ignores this request to meet these new fans, but then in his response, he explains why. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus says that this this indeed is the moment in which he, the Son of Man, will be glorified, but the glorification that God intends for him is not the glorification that his worldly fans intend for him. Glory in the eyes of the world looks like increasing fame and popularity and greater influence and external measures of success. Glory in the eyes of God, though, involves pouring ourselves out for the sake of other people. Pouring ourselves out, being willing to to walk a path of costly sacrifice, even a path of death. The influence that Jesus has in mind is not the fleeting popularity that comes and goes so quickly. Jesus is looking for deeper multiplication, something that involves sacrifice and death, but that produces many seeds, many other lives transformed by God's grace. Jesus is not trying to collect larger numbers of fans. Jesus is calling and raising up people to participate in God's eternal kingdom, to live out God's character, to avoid the trap of falling in love with the empty, fleeting pleasures of this world, and to commit themselves to follow him no matter where he's going to lead, even at great cost. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. Jesus knows that the crowd of fans drawn to his miracles is temporary. But Jesus is looking for for committed, faithful servants who will follow him no matter what, who's going to display the deep devotion of Mary as she poured out that perfume on his feet and who will stand with him where he is, no matter what the cost. 
Imagine the emotions Jesus would have been tempted to experience in this moment. He's surrounded by adoring fans. Most of us would have felt so excited and affirmed. Wow, everybody likes me. I have so many fans. But Jesus looks through and past this earthly popularity surrounding him, and he looks ahead to his death. And so instead of feeling excitement and affirmation, Jesus feels emotions that are completely different. And he says this, now my soul is troubled. Wait, this is the height of your popularity. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The path ahead is difficult. This path involves sacrifice and loss. Yet Jesus recognizes that this is the right path and that it's for this reason that he came to this hour and so he prays, Father, glorify your name. In this moment, worldly glory is offered to Jesus, but Jesus refuses it and instead chooses the Father's glory. Immediately after Jesus prays his prayer, we read, There was a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And immediately after the Father speaks, Jesus says, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Not only does Jesus reject the the ways that the, the world around him is trying to influence others and gather fans, but Jesus says now is the time for judgment on this world. In other words, the, the way the world influences and the way the world destroys lives, this is itself under the judgment of God. The prince of this world that Jesus mentions is Satan. And through Jesus Christ's death, Satan's power is broken. Not only that, but by rejecting this path to popularity that's being offered to him, and instead by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, a cross through which Jesus will be lifted up, Above the ground, through this, Jesus will draw all people to himself. He's not trying to attract temporary fans. Jesus is calling transformed followers. And so the fans around him push back. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? We we don't like what we're hearing. You need to be who we want you to be, not who God has called you to be. When they speak of the Messiah remaining forever, they're expressing their hope for an earthly ruler who will establish an earthly kingdom of enduring stability and peace. 
the way they've already greeted Jesus, reveals that they hope he'll be for them this type of person, this type of leader, earthly ruler. And so they're simply confused. How can Jesus say the Son of Man, which is an Old Testament title for the Messiah, how can Jesus say the Son of Man will be lifted up in the death of crucifixion? Their confusion is driven by their refusal to accept Jesus for who he truly is and to accept God's plan of salvation for God's people. Jesus, in response, by showing them that their hopes for political maneuvering are misplaced. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. Now we know from earlier parts of the book of John that Jesus himself is the light. And he's telling them that they're going to have him with them for just a little while longer. And so, <coughs> and so their desire for Jesus' permanent physical presence and their desire for their earthly rule uh, that they want him to bring arises from their misunderstanding of who he really is. Jesus is the light, the true light, not the false light they want him to be. And so he's giving them a window of time right now to believe in him as he truly is. But this opportunity, this window of time is not going to last forever. He soon will be hidden from them through crucifixion and death. Their dreams of an earthly kingdom led by Jesus Christ are different from God's plans for an eternal kingdom led by Jesus Christ. Jesus sees that they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They just don't see God's plan. They don't have God's kingdom in mind. And so at the end of this passage, Jesus enacts his ultimate rejection of their path to glory. Jesus enacts his rejection of their offer of popularity and earthly power. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Rather than allow the crowds to convert him into their image of who he should be, Jesus calls the crowds to change. Jesus calls the crowds to convert, to become who God is calling them to be. Jesus calls them to believe in him as he truly is so they can become children of the light now is their opportunity to change, Jesus says. But this opportunity isn't going to last long. And it seems likely that at least some and perhaps many of those in the crowd on Palm Sunday were so deeply disappointed that Jesus refused to be the earthly king that they demanded that they would gather later in the week in the middle of the night and shout, crucify him, crucify him. Paul writes, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. 
Now is the day of salvation. Today, Jesus Christ calls us to stop projecting onto him our desires for our own earthly kingdoms. He calls us to stop trying to attract fans using the self-promoting methods of our world. He calls us to let go of our ambitions to leverage our social capital and all that we have to promote our own earthly agendas. Jesus calls us instead to follow in his footsteps toward the cross and toward resurrection. Jesus doesn't save his life. He pours it out. Jesus doesn't gather fans. He he calls transformed followers. Jesus doesn't accumulate earthly status or popularity. He humbles himself. He hides himself to bring glory to the Father. If anyone was ever positioned for fame and earthly glory, it was Charles T. Studd, who was born in the UK in the late 1800s. His wealthy family sent him to the best, most expensive schools of his day, Eton and Cambridge. And by the age of 22, he was already a famous, nationally known, probably internationally known athlete because he competed for the nation of England against Australia in cricket. His life could have been one of unending and increasing earthly influence, wealth, and power. When he was 24 years old, though, his brother became extremely sick, and Charles began to ask himself a simple question. What's all the fame and flattery worth when a person comes to face eternity? He had made a commitment to follow Jesus many years earlier, but up to this point in his life, he had not seriously thought about the things of God. He was just living his own life. Now, though, God was using his brother's illness to call him into a deeper walk with Jesus Christ. And he began to realize what matters most of all. And so he wrote, I I know that cricket will not last. I know that honor will not last, that nothing in this world will last, but it is worthwhile living for the world to come. And so Charles gave up all his worldly wealth, all his opportunities, in order to follow God's call to spread the truth and love of Jesus Christ in China. He would later also go on to serve in India and in Africa as well. And he wrote a famous poem. It's kind of long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But throughout the poem, there's this one refrain, these two lines that are repeated again and again and again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's only one life that each of us have begun been given, and it will soon be passed. 
living for God's kingdom and, and Christ's glory rather than our own little earthly kingdoms or our own fleeting earthly popularity. This is the only life that's ultimately worthwhile and eternally influential. Only what's done for Christ will last. This Palm Sunday, I pray that we'll allow Jesus Christ to change how we evaluate influence and that we'll choose to follow him down paths that may seem unimpressive and unimportant from an earthly perspective. But if he's leading us, then we may be sure that the path we walk is of true significance and true contribution, contribution to his kingdom. If we're lifting ourselves up, we're going to fail. But if we're lifting up Jesus Christ, he will draw all people to himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that, that you show us the way of love and you reveal to us a path that we would have never thought of apart from you. But this is the only path worth living, the only only path worth walking. And, and Jesus, today, I just pray for your grace upon us, that as you call us to a radically different perspective, a radically different way of life, that, that we would be willing to be transformed and that you would just change how we think, how we see everything, how we live, how we influence. And that, Lord, above all, that we would just seek to lift up your name and, and bring glory, honor, and praise to you. Thank you. In your name we pray, amen.